We have read the passage, John 19, 16 to 42. It's the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. In the ancient world, crucifixion was known as the most pitiable of deaths. That comes from the Jewish historian Josephus. It was also known as that cruel and disgusting penalty. That comes from the Roman chronicler Cicero. Crucifixion was invented in ancient Persia. It was practiced and popularized in ancient Carthage. And most historians will tell you it was perfected by the ancient Romans. Many books, many sermons, many things have been said about the horrors of crucifixion. There's not a whole lot of detail in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, about the gory details involved. Uh, That's probably for a couple of reasons. One, it's not the main point. The physical suffering of Jesus, as horrific as it was, was not the main point of the crucifixion. And number two, the original readers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were very familiar with the gory details of crucifixion, and they didn't need Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, or John to provide them with those details. Most of the time in the ancient world, Roman citizens were not crucified. That would have been a rare thing. It's usually resolved or reserved for slaves, uh, traitors to the army, people who had been disgraced in some way, shape, or form. When we pick up the story in John 19, 16, Jesus has already been arrested. He's already been tried multiple times, Jewish trials, Roman trials, throughout the night. He's been condemned. He's been beaten. And now he has taken, John says, to a place of the skull, a place that in Aramaic is called Golgotha, a place that in Latin was translated Calvary, and we just read about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. If you want details about the place and the timing and all of the details involved in crucifixion, a good study Bible can provide all of those things for you. Our emphasis this morning will not be on those details. I do want to note, as we've read the passage just a moment ago, there are a number of characters that come into play at this part of the story. John refers to four women who were present during the crucifixion of Jesus. Mary, that's the mother of Jesus, Mary's sister. Another Mary, Mary the wife of Clopas, who we talked a few weeks ago when we talked about a man named Cleopas at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And then Mary Magdalene. John also mentions two men who buried Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We could say things about each of these characters, but none of these ancillary characters are the central point of this particular passage, and so we're acknowledging that they're there, but our focus is going to be not on them, but on Jesus. That's fitting because John wrote this gospel from beginning to end so that you might believe the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. When we worked our way through the Gospel of John, and as we've spent the last few weeks in the Gospel of John, we have repeatedly come back to John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. If your Bible's open, you may be on that page already. The text says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose statement for the entirety of John's gospel. 
and it fits with the purpose statement of the passage that we just read a moment ago. If you look in our passage at John 19, verse 35, there's a little aside. As Jesus is pierced, John says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. That you also may believe. John wrote this gospel so that you would believe. He wrote this story of the crucifixion that you would believe in Jesus. And even though we're here at an early service on a Sunday morning in the Bible Belt, it's worth pausing to ask yourself, do I believe the truth about Jesus? It's not a a matter of do you know the facts. We want you to know the facts. It's not a matter of do you believe these things are really reflective of what happened in history. You say, well, I believe these things happened in history. They're true. The question is, do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you believe that he died on the cross for sinners? And have you put your faith personally in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished for sinners on the cross? That's a question to just let it roll through your mind as we work through this passage and we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I believe the truth about Jesus? Here's the big idea of what we've read this morning. The believer has hope. We want you to have hope. The believer has hope because of who Jesus is and what he did for sinners. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, you have hope, you have confidence because of who Jesus is and because of what he did. Now, we could spend our time focusing on the what. What did he do? Well, we read John 19, 16 to 42. He died. He was crucified. He laid down his life for the sheep. Really, that's not in much question amongst anybody who would talk about the, uh, the person, the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. I think the question we need to wrestle with this morning is, who is Jesus? And throughout this account of John telling us what happened, what did he do? He died on a cross. John gives us detail after detail after detail that if you have eyes to see, you realize John's not just telling me what happened, but he's telling me who it happened to. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, you may realize this or you may be completely oblivious to this, but the religious and the intellectual and the philosophical landscape of where you and I live, United States of America in the year 2022, it is littered with answers to the question, who is Jesus? There are a seemingly endless number of ways that people answer that question today. I'm going to put a few on the screen, and I'm going to move through these quickly and just present some of the options to you. Who is Jesus? We'll throw some of these up, Jackson. Right here. Who is he? The atheists... For example, like Bart Ehrman, tell us that Jesus was an itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. And he went around and he taught people and he was crucified. But he was just a man 
And when the Romans took him off the cross, they probably threw him in a shallow grave and he was eaten by dogs. It's one answer to the question, who is Jesus? Here's another answer. Mainstream liberal Protestants. They believe there was somebody named Jesus who lived about 2,000 years ago. They believe he was a really nice person. He was so nice they killed him. He was just nice. He wanted everybody to be nice. He preached a message of love and acceptance and tolerance, and he challenged the mean, grouchy religious people, and he just wanted people to be open-minded and just love everybody. That's an answer to who Jesus was, who he is. What about the Jehovah's Witnesses? Jehovah's Witnesses tell us that Jesus was the first thing, the first person that God created in the beginning. It's not a biblical idea. It's what is taught in the Jehovah's Witness faith by the Watchtower Society. God created Jesus. Jesus is the same person as Michael the archangel. And then Jesus slash Michael created all that exists. He's the first of God's creatures. The LDS church, the Mormons. The Mormons tell us, That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate deities amongst many deities. And that Jesus and Lucifer are the spirit children of God the Father. And that you and I are also spirit children and that Jesus, our elder spirit brother, came to save us in some sense. But not like we would say Jesus came to save us from our sins. Again, not a biblical view, but an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Muslims believe in Jesus. They call him Isa. And they insist that he was a prophet of Allah. Just one in a long line of prophets who spoke for God. He was a man, they tell us. Oneness Pentecostals. It's a popular denomination in the United States of America. It's a growing denomination in the United States of America. They deny the Trinity, and they teach something called modalism. They say in the Old Testament, God was the Father. And then in the New Testament, God became the Son, stopped being the Father. And now after the New Testament, God is the Holy Spirit, stopped being the Father and the Son. He's one of these modes in succession. Again, not a biblical idea at all. Flies completely in the face of Scripture, but a popular idea in the United States of America. Evangelicals. Hopefully evangelicals get it right, but many times I think we get it wrong. And we're functional docetists. Docetism is an ancient heresy that says Jesus was God who looked like man. He really didn't become Man. He didn't become human. Sort of like Superman. He looked like one of us. He walked around like one of us, but he was really just sort of God in disguise. The incarnation didn't really happen. It was just God pretending to be a man. Many times we think about Jesus that way, just Superman walking around. What about religious art? Think about the things you've seen in old church buildings, the things you've seen in people's homes, the things you've seen online. Many times Jesus is portrayed as a fair-skinned, long-haired, smiling, blue-eyed version of the Mona Lisa. 
And when I say that, you know the picture I'm talking about. You've seen this picture of Jesus. And sometimes that sort of just serene, very white, very western version of Jesus is what we think about when we think about who Jesus is. There's a lot of answers to this question. You and I need to make sure we have the right answer to this question. Let me give you an illustration about why this matters and why this is important. Jackson, put my, my phone book picture up on the screen. How many of you have used one of these? Just put your hand in your Honest question, how many of you have never in your life opened one of these? There's got to be some young people in the room. A few hands going up, yes. Have never. For some of you, that's hard to believe. There are human beings on the earth who have never opened one of these books. This is a phone book. I was told by many of you on the way in that I'm officially in the old category after celebrating my 40th birthday, so I'll educate the young people in the room this morning. This is a phone book. It has two sections. Actually, it has three sections. The section in the back is the coupons that you really got excited about. But the two main sections, the white pages and the yellow pages. The white pages was mostly people. Businesses are listed too, and it's just all alphabetical order, just A all the way to Z, and it's got names, and it's got addresses, and it's got phone numbers. The yellow pages are reserved for businesses, and they're grouped. They're alphabetical within groups, and so you've got car dealerships, and you've got restaurants, and you've got all sorts of different groupings of business. And in the old days, before Al Gore invented the internet, this is how you found out how to contact people. This is where you got addresses. This is where you got phone numbers. You couldn't just Google something. It's so easy. Google pulls it all up. It just shows it to you. You just have to tap for the map. You tap for the phone number. It's easy. In the old days, it was hard. It was like walking uphill in the snow both ways. You had to get this book out. You had to know the alphabet. You had to be in the right section. You had to find the right name, the right number, all this stuff. Now, in the old days, when you're working out of one of these books, let's say you want to order a pizza. So you go to the yellow pages, and you find restaurants. You go through the restaurants. Maybe there was even a pizza section in the yellow pages, and you find all these restaurants. You say, I want Pizza Hut. Okay? This is the old days. No Papa John's yet. Domino's was still gross. There's nothing. This Pizza Hut. You're ordering Pizza Hut. And you've got to find the right Pizza Hut. You can't just pick any Pizza Hut in the yellow pages. Do you remember this? Sometimes you would call the wrong Pizza Hut and they would say, where do you live? We do not deliver to your neighborhood. You have the wrong Pizza Hut. And they would just hang up on you and you had to call another Pizza Hut. You had to find the right one, the right location, the right number. There was only one of them that would actually bring a pizza to your house. Lots of them listed, but only one that would bring a pizza to your house. Let's say you want to call your friend John Smith in the old days. John Smith. You go to the white pages, you open it up. Trick question for the kids, do you look up J or S? S. You go to Smith, comma, John, and depending on the size of your town, there's about 50, 100, 200, 500 John Smiths listed there. There's only one you want right? Only one. So maybe you look at the address, 
Maybe you're looking for, you're looking for a, a number you recognize. We used to memorize phone numbers or sort of remember phone numbers. So maybe you look at the last four and you say, I think that's the one. But there's only one that you wanted to talk to. You don't just get to pick a John Smith and call that number and expect to find the right guy. There's a lot of John Smith. There's a lot of Pizza Huts. But you got to find the right one. You got to find the right one. Let's bring it into the year 2022 and let's talk about social media. If you get online and you're looking someone up on social media, whatever platform you want to talk about, Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is you're looking at, say, I'm looking for a person. You can get on these apps and you can type in a name. We do this in staff meeting all the time. When new people come to our church, no offense, new people, this is how we look you up. Right? You fill the thing out and we say, do we know these people? Let's look them up on Facebook. Let's see if they're on there. And we look for them. Do we have any mutual friends? Do we know them? Where are they from? Now, when you look for someone on Facebook, you're usually looking for one specific person. I looked myself up this week on Facebook. Landon Coleman. There's dozens of us. Dozens and dozens and dozens of us. Well over 100 Landon Coleman's on Facebook, but there's only one that's going to come visit you in the hospital. There's only one that's going to pay too, way too much money for a cake in two weeks at the men's cake bake. All those other guys, they're not going to be here. There's only one. I'm going to outbid Dan Farber. I saw you raise your hand. I'm going to outbid Dan. There's only one of us that's going to do that. You can't just send a friend request to somebody with the right name and expect to actually connect with the right person. So you take what we're saying here about Pizza Hut, what we're saying about John Smith in the white pages, what we're saying about finding people on social media, and let's put back up our list about who Jesus is, all these answers to the question, who is Jesus? There's lots of Jesuses out there. There's lots of ideas about who he is. Is it good enough just to get J-E-S-U-S right? Well, it's not good enough to get the wrong Pizza Hut. There's only one John Smith that you actually want to talk to. There's only one Landon Coleman who's the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Odessa, Texas. And there is one Jesus, one true Jesus. There's a lot of made-up versions they're not necessarily idols of the hand, like a statue, but they're idols of the mind and the heart, where people come up with their own ideas about who he is and what they want him to be like. The question in this passage, what did Jesus do, is pretty easily answered. He died on a cross. He was crucified. What we're going to wrestle with this morning is, who was that guy? Who is that guy? Who is Jesus? John gives us lots of clues. I've got 10 answers, and we're going to move through these pretty quickly. So have your pen ready, have your Bible ready. Here we go. Who is Jesus? Number one, Jesus is the suffering servant. The suffering servant. Look what John says in verse 18. It says, They crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. He is crucified amongst criminals. If you go to the end of our passage, you read that there is a man named Joseph of Arimathea 
likely a rich man, who takes the body of Jesus and lays Jesus' body in a tomb, his own tomb. Crucified with criminals, buried by a rich man in a borrowed tomb. John is telling you these things not just so that you know what happened, but so that you understand who Jesus is. And he's connecting them back to Isaiah 52 and 53. The greatest, longest, clearest Old Testament prophecy about the Savior that God was going to send. Historians, Bible scholars call the person of Isaiah 52 and 53 the suffering servant. And this is what Isaiah says. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He was poured out, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. These prophecies... Hundreds of years earlier, spoken by Isaiah, have come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is not just a rabbi from Nazareth. He's not just a carpenter from Nazareth. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah promised. That means he was pierced for our transgressions. That means he was crushed for our iniquities. Number two, who is Jesus? He's the king of kings. The king of kings. There's many details in this story, in the passage right before ours that point to this truth. But look what we read in verse 19. Pilate wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And then he gives the back and forth between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. And it's clear that Pilate's just trying to take a jab at these guys. He's angry that they've backed him into a corner with Jesus. He doesn't want to do this necessarily, but he feels like he doesn't have a choice. So he's taking a jab at the Jews. They don't really believe Jesus is the king, their king. They want the the sign altered or edited. And Pilate says no, and there's this little back and forth. But in recording this detail, it's clear that John is saying to you, You understand, he really is the king. The king is dying for his people. He's the king of the Jews. He's the one talked about in the Old Testament in so many places. I'll just give you one example. Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? It's the Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It's a coronation psalm talking about the King of Israel, and Jesus is the fulfillment of what Psalm 24 is talking about. We'll come back to Psalm 24 in just a minute. Who is Jesus? Number three, he's the Savior of the world. We sang this just a moment ago. He's the Savior of the world. Back to the sign that Pilate wrote, verse 20, many of the Jews read the inscription, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Again, Pilate probably didn't have the purest of motives here, but in writing this sign in three languages... He's making this truth about who Jesus is plain to everyone and anyone who might pass by. If you speak Hebrew or Aramaic, you could read it. If you spoke Latin, you could read it. If you spoke Greek, you could read it. Everyone could read it. Why is it important? It's because Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews only. He 
He's really the Savior of the world. And we've talked about this not long ago in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And just one chapter later is Jesus visits with the woman at the well in Samaria and she goes to her village and she brings these people back to meet Jesus. The crowd from this village say he is the savior of the world. Not just of the Jews but also of the Samaritans and the Gentiles. He's the savior of the world. Number four, he's the obedient son of God. The obedient Son of God. Verse 26 and 27, Jesus is being crucified. He sees Mary, his mother, and he sees John, the beloved disciple, the author of this gospel. And he says to Mary, this is my paraphrase, John's going to take care of you. And he says to John, this is my paraphrase, take care of my mother. Remember that at this point in the story, Jesus' brothers thought Jesus was nuts. And Jesus, in his dying moment, provides for the care of his mother. Why do we need to know that? Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. Jesus had kept it perfectly along with all the other commandments, and even down to his dying moments, he is an obedient son. Why does that matter? Well, to take our place on the cross, he had to be sinless. To represent us before a holy God, he had to be holy. He had to be completely obedient to the law of God. Back to Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's not you and that's not me. We're unclean people. We're like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Who can represent us before the Lord? Only one who is obedient, only one who is righteous. John's telling us that Jesus is that one. Number five, Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. If you read John 18 and 19, there are five references to the fact that it's the Passover. If you turned this essay in in eighth grade, your English teacher would scratch three of them off and say, I got it. Quit saying that. But John does not want you to miss it. It's the Passover. It's the Passover. They're preparing for the Passover. He says it over and over and over again. And if you look at John 19, verse 29, John says there was a jar of sour wine. They put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. Why do you need to know the kind of branch that they used to put the sponge up to give Jesus a drink? Well, if you search for the word hyssop in the Bible, the first time you'll find it is in Exodus 12, 22. Instructions for the Passover. Take the lambs at twilight, slaughter the lambs, roast them, eat them, collect the blood in a bowl, take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, and smear it on the door. And if you do that, death will pass over you. Why do we need to know it's a hyssop branch? Because John wants you to know who Jesus is. He doesn't just want you to know that he died. He wants you to know who died. 
Jesus, the true Passover lamb. We saw it in John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Number six, Jesus is the good shepherd. We talked about this passage a few weeks ago. Maybe you noticed John 19 at the end, verse 30, the end of verse 30. Jesus had received the sour wine, and then he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. You remember what Jesus said in John 10 when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Even after all the horrific things he experienced, he's the one who bowed his head. He's the one who gave up his spirit. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is the flip of everything the Jewish people knew in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, it was the lamb who died so that the shepherds of Israel could live. And in the fullness of God's plan, all of these Old Testament persons and images and ideas come together, and the Passover lamb is actually the good shepherd. And it's the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Number seven, Jesus is the God-man. Truly God, truly man. John presents his suffering as real. Remember earlier we said there are some people who pretend that Jesus was God pretending to be a human. Just sort of pretending like this hurt, pretending like the beating was terrible, pretending like the crown of thorns was bad. John doesn't see pretending in any of this. It is real because Jesus really, truly is human. And John is not pulling this out at the end of the gospel. He said this to us at the very beginning of the gospel. John chapter 1, 1 to 2. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Truly God, truly man. Not a creation, but the Creator who took on human flesh. He's the God-man. This is the miracle of Christmas. It's what theologians call the miracle of the incarnation. It is essential to what we believe about salvation. That only God could take our place and take the punishment that we deserved, but that only a human, not a lamb, not a goat, not a bull, but a human could stand in our place. So, to meet those criteria, God became man. And that's who Jesus is, the God-man. Number eight, he's the second Adam. The second Adam. I'm going to go back to John 18 just a little bit. In John 18, we read that Jesus entered a garden. It's not called Gethsemane, it's just called a garden. Jesus entered a garden. And while he was in that garden, people came looking for him, asking, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? If you've read the Old Testament, if you've read the first book of the Bible, you know that there was another man who lived in a garden named Adam. And you know that a day came when someone came looking for him. 
The Lord came looking for Adam. Adam, where are you? And he ran and he hid in the bushes. The Lord Jesus enters a garden. His enemies come looking for him, and he's not hiding. He faces them head on, and he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. The first Adam was given a job in the garden. Exercise dominion over this garden. He did not finish that work. The Lord Jesus finished his work. It says it twice. John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, verse 30, he said, it is finished. And what did they do with his body when he finished his work? They laid him at rest in a garden. All these details John is telling you, not just so you know the setting of the story, but so you know the hero of the story, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. The first Adam, our representative, plunged us into sin and death. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, a better Adam, a greater Adam, leads us into life and righteousness. Number nine, Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Three examples of this. Verse 24, they talk about Jesus' clothing. Verse 28, John talks about this drink. Verse 37, John talks about the spear that pierced Jesus' side. The references here are to Psalm 22, to Exodus 12, to Zechariah 12. You can connect all those dots on your own, but John wants you to see, he says it over and over and over, the Scriptures are being fulfilled in this moment. All of the Old Testament hopes and promises and images and institutions are pointing you forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfills all of them. Number 10, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. Again, right where we started, John 19, verse 35, he who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth, and he's telling you the truth so that you may believe. John wants you to believe. What does he want you to believe? Well, he fleshes that out. Just a chapter later, chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. We've talked about who Jesus is Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we remember and celebrate the work of Jesus in his death on the cross. What did he do? He died for us. He died our death. He died as our substitute. He died as a sacrifice. He died to provide atonement. And when we take the bread and the cup, we remember the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, and we give thanks to God for what Jesus did. We remember and we celebrate Jesus died for sinners. That's not all that we do when we take the Lord's Supper. Secondly, in the Lord's Supper, we remember and celebrate the person of Jesus who died on the cross. Who is it that died? Who is it that provided a sacrifice, an atonement? Who is it that took our place? There's so many answers to the question, who is Jesus. 
And John's telling us who he is. He's the suffering servant. He's the king of kings. He's the savior of the world, the obedient son, the Passover lamb, the good shepherd, the God-man, the second Adam, the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the Christ, the Messiah. This morning, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, if you are a believer, you have put your faith in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. I'm going to give you just a moment or two to pray and to think and to prepare your heart to thank God for, yes, what Jesus did for us, but also to think about who Jesus is. And maybe you just take that list that we went through, one through ten, and you think about those and you thank God. Thank you for sending Jesus. I'm going to let you pray. And then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.